the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near and by clans. The clan of the, the Matriites was taken by lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when they stood, when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulder upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each to his own house. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and when he had went up, and excuse me, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, "How can this man save us?" They despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Please be seated. It's a hard thing to know how to deal with someone who's living in sin. It's even more difficult when they just won't see it. You can tell them there's a problem. You can encourage them to come before the Lord. But at the end of it all, you can't repent for them. I can't repent for you, you can't repent for me, you can't repent for anyone else. This is even more difficult when the person we're who we're, we're trying to show these things to thinks that they're already living okay. We certainly see this in the world around us. We see clear evidence of wickedness. We see the ways in which the world lives is living for destruction. But they can't see it. They can't see it for themselves. It's harder, even harder, I think, when it's not just the nebulous world around us, but it's the people who are right here near us, the, the people who are closest to us. Sometimes it's a family member who's dealing with an addiction. And we know it's harmful to them, but they can't see it. Sometimes it's those who are so convinced that they're right that they get blinded by their own arrogance. And we may point out over and over again the destructive life that they're living, but they just can't see it. They continue to live this self-destructive lifestyle. And the reality is, in all of this, all we can do is to continue to call people to repentance. We have to tell them the truth of the gospel. We must help them to understand their relationship with and before God. But as the saying goes, you can lead a horse to water. You can't make it drink. This is somewhat of what we see in our text today. God has revealed to Samuel the choice. Saul, son of Kish, he will be king. Saul had gone home. He didn't even tell his family. It hadn't been announced yet. There was still a public announcement coming. And here comes this pivotal moment in the history of Israel. Israel would get the king that they wanted. So we're going to see three things in our text. The people rebuked, the king revealed, and the king received. The people rebuked, the king revealed, and the king received. It's interesting, and I wonder if any of you have picked up on this, 
that we return to Mizpah. Mizpah is the place where Israel came to Samuel and they repented. They said, we want you to go before us, before the Lord. And there was this great repentance. You can imagine, and it doesn't say here, so I'm not, we can't, you know. But you can imagine Samuel choosing this place intentionally. Samuel may have been hoping that there would be a second round of repentance for the nation. And so he takes the opportunity immediately to rebuke the nation. They've shown their unbelief. That's the first thing he says. He gathers them at Mizpah and he says, this is Lord God of Israel. I brought you, brought you up out of Israel. Or I brought you up Israel out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and all your enemies. But today you reject me. You reject God. The one who saved you from all your calamities, your distress. And you have said to him, set a king over us. He rebukes them. This rebuke comes in two parts. First, he reminds them of God's saving work. Hey, remember what God has done for you? God saved you. He saved you from Egypt. He saved you from your enemies. He can, has continued to save you over and over and over again. When you were oppressed and you called upon him, he delivered you. Same is true today. We should be reminded daily. God has delivered us. He saved us. We should remember our history, our own history, and therefore daily fight the battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. He reminds them of the faithfulness of God. But God's people, they're stubborn. They're stiff-necked. We like to, at times, avoid our problems by... Embracing or siding with the world. This is what they're exactly what Israel's doing in demanding a king. Give us a king like the nations. You might argue, well, they're not asking for a new God, they're just asking for a new government, a new political system. But but Paul, or excuse me, but Samuel's second point is to say to do one is to do the other. We see this in verse 19. In asking for a king, saying, set a king over us, you have rejected your God. If we do something similar, if we have a desire to be like the world, we are doing the same thing. We are setting that up, whatever it may be, over God. And yet God demands faithfulness from his people. He demands holiness before the world. To desire a king is to no longer want the Lord to be God's people. Sadly, Israel did not heed the rebuke of Samuel. But we must. We must be reminded daily of God's saving work in history. Because while we no longer have a kingship in a worldly sense, right? We don't have a king of America. We do have a king. We have Jesus who is our king, and he has set up his authority over us. And Jesus, through his authority and power, has empowered the church to this end. We come here on a, on a weekly basis. My hope is that you are reminded of the faithfulness of your God. 
But even as we've been looking through 1 Corinthians through our scripture reading, you see, see today, as Alan read our text, this commandment about lawsuit. Like, this is what, how the church needs to act. And we've seen, we've seen that Paul rebuking the Corinthians for the way they failed to act. And this is what God has done. God has set up, or excuse me, this is what Christ has done. He has set up the church. He's empowered the church to this end. This is why we have things like church discipline, to rebuke, to call people to repentance. One of the things we talk about, we have something, probably none of y'all have read it, maybe you've read parts of it, I don't know. We have something called the Book of Church Order, and the Book of Church Order says this first and foremost, that Christ alone, Christ alone is the head of the church, and that's certainly true. And it goes, But it goes on to say this, but Christ appoints officers and ordinances for the governance and discipline of the church. And this is what we see. This is something biblical. We see in the Bible that Christ has given to us the church, and he has set up leaders in the church and ordinances in the church for the governance of the church and the discipline of the church. And so when we talk about, yes, we don't have a king, but we still have a system of authority that we submit ourselves to. So that when you come and join our church, if you've answered these questions, it says, do, do you agree to submit yourself to the governance and discipline of the church and work for its purity and peace? When you join the church, you ascend to those questions, or you, you agree to those questions. They're important questions. If we are to endure in this life, then we must know that God watches over us, that he cares for us, and he provides for us. Ultimately, he has provided his son, Jesus Christ. And to seek after anything else is to reject God. In essence, we can put it this way. We cannot play with the things of this world and expect not to be, and expect not to be burned by it. We cannot love the world and love God. We cannot love its powers, its beliefs, and its loves. All of these things is to reject God. We must have a desire for God and God alone. We don't look to any worldly governments. We don't look to any worldly powers. We look to him and him alone. But Israel, they have rejected God this day. They have asked for the king. And so Samuel at this point does a very interesting thing. We already know that Saul has chosen to be king. But what they do here now is they draw lots in essence. And at this point, we don't know, we don't have a very good sense of this, probably because we don't know our Old Testament as well as we should. This, his act would have terrified Israel. You might go, well, why, Daniel? Why would it have terrified Israel? Lots was a form of judgment. In fact, some of you may know the story of Achan, right? In the book of Judges, Achan, God commanded him, we're going to go in here, we're going to wipe out these people, don't take anything from them. Don't take their riches, don't take their cattle, none of it. Achan took for himself, he buried it in the ground, right? And the people were called together, and Moses, and they drew lots. First by tribe, then by clan, then by a specific person. When that last lot was chosen, it was cast on Achan. It was the, it was the, the judgment that came upon him. If you know the end of Achan, well, you know he was put to death immediately for his sinfulness and disobedience. And so when Samuel rebukes the people and he says, okay, we're going to draw lots. This was a signal of judgment. You can imagine there's a fearfulness here. 
But they do it. They draw lots. Went from the greatest down to a single person. They moved from clan, tribe to clan, Benjamin to Matriites, and then finally Saul. And it's by no mistake that Saul is given in the place of judgment. The giving of Saul was a judgment on the nation. All of Israel was receiving their king, and this king would judge them. Not only this, the lot showed that it was God who was doing it. But then it's funny. All right, Saul's our king. Where, where's, are you sure there's not someone else coming? We can't find Saul. Saul, this member, Mr. Israelite, Mr. Israel, he, we, we said he would be selected as Mr. Israel. He can't be found. He's tall. He's a head taller than anyone else. He's big and bad, right? Where is Saul? He's hiding with the luggage. He's hiding with the luggage. He's neglecting his duty because of everyone there, aside from Samuel and himself, who knew that he was going to be picked? Saul. Saul already was told he was going to get picked. Samuel, you know, had this whole conversation with Saul. He anointed his head with oil. He said, you're going to be the king of Israel. Saul went home, didn't tell anybody. He goes to this, all the tribes being cast together, and he goes and hides. He's selfishly neglecting his duty. It's interesting because you need to remember this because as we learn more about Saul, guess what Saul's going to continue to do throughout his reign as king? Selfishly, selfishly neglect his duty. It doesn't mark a good... Can you imagine? I, in some ways, I feel like, and I think it, you know, we, we have to be careful when we do this, but it's, it's hard to not put myself in the shoes of Samuel, or, or at least to consider Samuel himself, right? Samuel knows, knows that Israel's messed up. He finally announces the king, and he's hiding. And then what does he say? Behold your king. This is who the Lord has given you. There's an irony, I think, in, in, to be seen here a little bit. In spite of all this, Saul looks like the king they wanted. He's tall, he's handsome, he's oppressive. They demanded a king like the nations, and they got a king like the nations. Yet God remains sovereign. No matter how the nation, or no matter how we try to take control from God, God remains sovereign. And we see this in the fact that immediately... Rules are pressed upon the kingship. Verse 25, then Saul, Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingship. He wrote them in a book and laid them up before the Lord. Now, we, it doesn't exactly tell us what these rights and duties are here. I think it's very a good inference for us to say that we could look to Deuteronomy 17, 16, and 20, which talk about the rights and duties of a king. It speaks to possessions and how he's not to have many wives. He's to write his own copy of the law. He cannot turn aside from the commandments of God. All these things are things like this. The king, the king would be called to obey the word of God. It's not that we, even ourselves, who are called to obey the law, are saved by the law. But being saved, being God's chosen, we are called to keep his laws. God exercises his sovereignty over Samuel and over us through his laws. He reigns over us through his word. 
To follow his rule is not legalism. It's obedience. It's obedience to a gracious and sovereign God. But in Saul, we see a picture of the ineffectiveness of the world. He's chosen to be king, and yet he hides. And this is what worldly leaders often do. They're looking out for themselves. They give little concern for good leadership. And this is what we often get when we trust earthly rulers. And yet, we know that all leaders come from God, and we must submit to them. We must submit to their rule. Inasmuch as they're not commanding us to do something contrary to Scripture, we have to submit to them. We have to be careful, too, though, because submitting to them as much as they don't tell us not, we cannot put ourselves into Scripture. We cannot change Scripture to, to make it say what we want it to say. If, if they're, so I'll just use a good example I like to use. If they're saying don't speed, we don't speed, right? The Bible is not, it's ambivalent in a lot of ways on speeding. It doesn't say uh, if you're speeding, if someone tells you not to speed, you're sinning, right? That's like a silly example, but it's true, right? We have to follow what they command. It doesn't matter if they're commanding us from the position of an unbeliever. If the government who is wicked says, don't speed, we don't speed. If the government who is wicked tells us to murder, then we don't murder, too. That's an important distinction. But we still follow. We first and foremost submit to God, but then we submit to God as God, they are God's appointed leaders. We must submit, understanding that there is a judgment that is coming. All will give an account before God. We cannot think for a moment that if we seek after this world and we seek to this world for its answers, that we will not have to face this judgment. We cannot think that if we lead and lead selfishly, that we will not answer for this is true in all spheres of life, in the, in the home, in the work, and at church, all of it. So their king is revealed, and they have received their king. And then we see that Israel receives this king indeed. And their response, I don't know if this is the first time it was ever said, but it has certainly been said many times since, long live the king. It really, at the end of the day, even in that statement, it shows the ignorance and the, the foolishness of Israel. Do you know why? Because it's already been prophesied that the king who would hold the royal scepter for, forever would not come from Benjamin. It would come from Judah. Even in their statement, long live their king, there's a fool's hope in this. Jacob prophesied that this would happen. But Saul comes from Benjamin. The kingship would not remain with Saul. We'll see this play out through the book of Samuel, right? We'll see this kingship pass from Saul to David. But for the time being, Saul stands as a contrast to the one true king. And I'm not talking about David. I'm talking about Jesus. It's interesting because we even see some similarities between David, and, or excuse me, Jesus and Saul. Jesus likewise hid his calling from as king from the people, but not out of reluctance. 
because he knew he had to first die for our sins and then take the royal glory and power for himself. While Saul was outwardly impressive, Jesus was truly impressive in all ways. He was pure and without sin. I was talking to my mother this week and I was reminded as we, some time ago, probably many of you weren't here, studied the book of Hebrews. And she goes, whenever I think of Hebrews, I'll think of your sermon series. And I was like, why was that, Mom? And she goes, well, you remember, you used to say it all the time. Does anybody remember? I used to say almost every Sunday when we went through the book of Hebrews, Jesus is better. He's better than what? Everything. I heard a few. And this is what it's saying. Jesus is better. He's the better king. He, there's no high priest better than him. There, not Moses is higher than him. Not all the angels are better than him. There's none like Jesus anywhere. He is the one true king. Saul was set forth as an expression of God's wrath against sin. But Jesus comes as the remedy for sin. He has made for us propitiation by his blood. He has sacrificed himself so that we might have life, so that we might have forgiveness of sins. So that Jesus' kingship is a reign of grace over sin. So that all who belong to his kingdom must come through him. We must come to his cross for cleaning, for cleansing, for forgiveness, for redemption. And yet it's interesting because we also see that Saul's kingship brought division. 26 and 27, Saul went to his home, went him with some men of valor whose, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presence, but he held his peace. It's an interesting thing here, as this is being recorded for us, they are, these men are very specifically called what? Worthless fellows. And we might could argue, why is that the case? Why are they called worthless fellows? Aren't they only acknowledging what Daniel, you're saying is true, that he is not a good king? How could he lead us? This is not the one who should lead us. But the reality is, is that God has appointed him. This is without question that God has appointed him to be king. We should hope this is never said of us, that we are called worthless fellows. If we bring division in the church, that's who we are. We're worthless fellows. But we know that the coming of Christ also likewise divided the world. Christ came and gave to some the mercy that comes from his son, but to others he has given punishment. The question is, who will we be? Will we crown Christ as king, crying out, long live the king? Or will we fail to bow the knee? Will we be these worthless fellows? We must know that his reign will never end. Israel has received their king, but they should not be excited about it. They should see their folly. They should see their ignorance. They were unified under God, but they are now divided under Saul. It is a division that will lead ultimately to their destruction. We likewise must turn from the false leaders and the false hopes of this world. We must turn to God. We must turn to Jesus, the one true savior of sinners. Jesus, who came and died on the cross, satisfying the divine wrath of God for our sins. 
This is where we find hope. This is where we find reconciliation. This is the most important thing for each of us. Christ comes and he divides the world. It's not hard for us to see. Wherever you find Christ, you find division. But we cannot allow the fear of those divisions to drive us away from Christ. We must come to him. We must find in him our true king. And we must bow the knee and submit to him, to his authority. Samuel gathers the people. He rebukes them in hopes. You have chosen what is perishable when you should have chosen what was imperishable. You have chosen what's temporary instead of choosing what is eternal. Yet they get what they want. And it will lead to their own destruction. Therefore, brothers and sisters in Christ, we must not receive the kings of this world, the leaders of this world. We must come and receive the one true king, the only savior of sinners, that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Submission is a hard thing. When we talk about submission, when we, and and it's, it's hard on all levels, right? We can talk about it from an ultimate sense, and we say, we first and foremost submit to God. And we do. That's exactly true. It's interesting. I think it still becomes hard for us. It's still hard for us to submit to God. We love ourselves. We love our desires. We love what we think is right. And then we go down from that, and it's hard to submit, let's just say, to governments. Governments we don't agree with. Governments, we don't hold the same values. It's hard to submit to bosses. We think they're unfair or they're undressed or they're treating some people one way or some people another way. We find it hard to submit to the authority of the church. We find it hard to submit to the authority of our, a father or our mother. We find it hard to submit. Submission, if it's universe, anything can be said to be universally true, it's that submission is hard. It's hard. Because we love ourselves, first and foremost. We love our own thoughts. We love our own, what we think is true of the world, our own view, our own vision of what we think the world is or should be. And I think you'll find that if, if you cannot submit to the lesser things, it becomes harder to submit to the ultimate thing. Brothers and sisters in Christ, would we not be so arrogant and so ignorant we cannot submit to our one true king. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, Lord, we come and we ask and we pray. Oh, Lord, enable us to bow the knee. Enable us to come in faith and repentance and hope in what Christ has done. And to submit first and foremost to his authority. And then in obedience to him, submit to the authority that he has placed over us, both in the church and in the home and in the work, at work and in the world. Always, Lord, always giving priority first and foremost to him, but understanding that there is not one authority over us that is not appointed by God, for he is sovereign over all things. We ask and pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand now and sing our closing hymn. Oh, how he loves you and me. Please stand as you're able.